Hello, guys. Today, Malcolm Collins, who with his wife are pro-natalists. They've started a number of ventures dealing with education and basically getting a word out that the world is collapsing. And they do it from a very unique point of view. They are sort of new world. In fact, they're very new world. Malcolm took the lightometer test. And wait till you see what he scored. Unique character, Malcolm Collins, talking about collapse of the new world, the modern society, because we're not making babies. Check it out today on Wartar. Malcolm, this is nice. So you're on, why are we talking about rabbits? I, I really want to give you, guys who listen to this, they know about our light o meter test, where we test sort of your new world, old world, old world acumen. That's, <laughs> we got to do that before you leave, okay? Because. Okay, okay. Oh my I God, think if you guys are asking me questions, I might fail some of these quizzes here and look really stupid. Oh, it's five serious, it's five very difficult questions that will change your life. How about that? Uh. Guys, so Malcolm, I don't want to go yada, 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 bio stuff, because I'll do a lot of bio stuff with you mm-hmm. in our introduction. But fundamentally, you see a problem. I think there's a problem you've identified, you and your wife, in this um, really cool work you're doing about pronatalism and birth rates. And What's the problem? Like, so, I mean, what on? we're most publicly known for is being sort of the leaders of the pronatalist movement right now, which is focused on trying to draw attention to falling fertility rates. Now, a lot of people, when they see this, they're like, oh, they're trying to get fertility rates up. And it's like anybody who thinks that that is fundamentally unaware of how big the problem is and how inexorable the problem is at this point. If we're on the Titanic, we're not trying to prevent it from hitting an iceberg anymore. We're trying to get as many people on lifeboats as possible. Mm. Um, the situation is bad. If the fertility rate continues to fall in the United States at the rate it has over the past 10 years, um, and we have one generation every 30 years, that means for every 100 Americans alive today, there's going to be 4.3 great-grandchildren. In the UK, it's like 1.3 great-grandchildren. You know, and people are like, well, eventually it'll get to a point where it's so low that like the system will automatically reverse itself and fertility rates will go back up. Uh, When I started caring about this, I was a venture capitalist out in uh, South Korea, um, and I was supposed to look at where the economy is going to be in 100 years. You know, if if you look at South Korea's current fertility rate, right, which is just this last year, it fell 13% year over year. So it's continuing to decline really quickly. For every 100 Koreans, this is assuming no continued decline when it's Mm -hmm. declining double digits every year, um, no continued decline for every 100 Koreans is going to be six great-grandchildren. You know, we are looking at a catastrophic situation. In China, the number of children born in China this year, this was in a report that just came out, was half the number of children born in China the year 10 years ago, the same year 10 Mm -hmm. years ago. Um, These numbers are crashing at rates which um, are going to lead to a breakdown of a lot of our economic and social structures, which means that as we plan for the future of our species, we need to plan very carefully now this is where it aligns with your work okay so Mm -hmm. a lot of people when they hear about this their initial intuition is let's use this 
new crises, like as soon as they accept that it actually is as much of a crisis as it is, well, let's use it to support that I wanted to do anyways. For -hmm. progressives, you know, the first thing they're going to say is, oh, well, let's give out money to people, right? Except it doesn't seem to work. You know, in Korea, they've given out um, $200 billion over the past 16 years to try to solve this. It did very little. And that um, money and, is given out in order to incentivize people to have babies? Is that what's Yeah, basically that? they give people money to have kids. Uh, Hungary tried the same thing this last year. They spent 5% of their GDP on it. They got it uh, the fertility rate up like 1.6%. It was trivial. Um, you know, uh, and there's this great uh chart that i love to use on this if you ever show charts during interviews uh which marks the studies that looked at how cash handouts help fertility rates and it marks them with uh error bars and it shows that all of the studies that say that that in any way it helps like it's a direct correlation mm-hmm. with margin of error in a study the less margin of error a study has the more likely it's going to say that it doesn't actually help uh, increase fertility rate. Andrew, um, put that And this makes a lot of sense up. when you look at the data. You know, if you talk to progressives about this, they'll be like, "Well, I need more money. That's why I don't have kids." And then you point out that within and between countries, the less money somebody has, the more kids they have. Um, and they're like, "Oh, oh, well." Uh, and, and what they really mean is that, that they don't want to sacrifice their lifestyle. And they're like, well, we can fix this with immigration. And I'm like, do you not know that by the UN's own data, and the UN famously inflates these numbers, um, by the UN's own data, all of, so, so collectively, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean fell below replacement rate. That means they're no longer replacing their own populations fertility rate-wise, all the way back in 2019. You know, we are a farmer who is fixing the fact that we have like unsustainable water management practices by draining from their neighbor's pond. And like you point out that that pond is also evaporating and they're like, well, that's not my problem. That's my neighbor's pond. And it's like, that's where you're getting your water. You nut job. That is your problem. Um, So the pond is, the pond is what we call the old world. It's, it's where we, we traditionally see more kids places like Africa and, well, so you, the really the only reason you're seeing a high fertility rate in Africa right now, and it's not every country in Africa, it's only a few countries still, is because they're really poor. Uh, generally, for a country to have an above repopulation fertility rate, the average citizen has to be earning less than five thousand USD per year. So, and that's why South America is above repo- below repopulation rate is because they're just wealthier than Africa. Um, so, you, you, it's not just poverty; it's like a desperate level of poverty is needed to keep people above repopulation rate with a caveat here. So who is still having kids? Because everyone's looking around. They're like, well, there must be somebody still having kids. Uh, Well, it turns out that even when they get wealthy, there is one group that still has a lot of kids. And that is the groups that follow the old ways, as you would say on, on, on your show or the groups that you're talking to, groups that are following these older operating systems that, um, you know, worked for humanity for a long time and aren't these newfangled experimental operating systems. Um, and this is really the solution to the problem. Um, so give me an example. I heard you speak about Georgia, the Georgia Republic, which a lot of people on our pod are familiar with. I live there. Oh, you uh, ha- yeah, we have a, even have a little teeny house there. That place is dear to me. I know it's one of the examples of <clears throat> regaining population, so to speak. They did something that worked. Yes, it was right? the Rose Revolution when they kicked out the last of the communists. Um, and it, it, it increased fertility rates for a period of about four or five years, which like nowhere else has done. Um, you'll see short boost to fertility rate, like order something, something in Romania where they banned abortion, but that only typically helps fertility rate for like two to three years. Um, this persistent help in fertility rate we saw in Georgia <coughs> has unfortunately... Yeah 
since fallen off and now it's going down again. Um, but, but generally if you're controlling for wealth in a country, um, the countries that have high fertility rates, despite having a lot of wealth, there's typically, uh, three traits that they'll have that other countries don't have. Okay. Let's hear these. They typically have more hope than other countries. So China, like, I think the core reason China is struggling so much with its fertility rate right now and the government can't do anything is people feel like they're being asked to have kids just to help the government, just to help the people in power stay in power. Mm -hmm. And of course that's very bad motivation, right? Um, the second thing is that they're typically very diverse. Typically, the more diverse a country is, the higher the fertility rate is for both the incoming populations and the native populations. And this then goes to conservatives when That's they hear Georgia. fertility rates are crashing. They're like, well, let's close our borders. And that seems to increase fertility collapse. Uh, like South Korea is a great example here. They have basically very, very, very few immigrants. Um, and to just highlight how big the problem is in South Korea, people are like, well, maybe South Korea could fix the problem now. The problem is, is that 60% of the population in South Korea is already over the age of 40. You know, they couldn't fix this problem even if they wanted to. No. Worse, um, uh, the big, like, social movement in the country now is the Four Nose movement, which is, like, this ultra-progressive feminist movement, which is, like, no sex, no men, no marriage. Like, there does not seem That's... to be a bottom floor at which yeah. society begins to correct for this. Um, but now this gets me to the second problem. So... The, the, the final thing you'll see with these countries is they're typically more religious than other countries. Yeah, that's what I want to get into. That's interesting. The big highlight, like the big country that bucks all of these trends is Israel. Israel has a high fertility rate, even in its secular population. Um, and and this is something like when we're studying um, how you fix this situation, we often look to Israel as a shining example here. Now, the problem is, um, and this is, we wrote a book on this that went into detail of like how cultural groups respond to change over time, sort of mirrored cultural battles that we have over time. And why cultural groups you know there's it's, it's like uh, we saw a fence randomly in our yard that's what people were doing when they threw out religion when they threw out tradition they didn't understand why the fence was there because they didn't understand that like historically once every 30 years it flooded up to that line and like you needed the fence to keep out the crocodiles um and so they threw away the fence and everything seemed fine for like a generation um I know everything is rapidly falling apart. The problem is, is that the internet, like if you think about religions or cultural groups as sort of like evolving cultural groups, like even if I look at this from a purely secular framework, right, which, which I do, I'm like, well, um, how did, you know, religious groups figure out hand washing literally uh, centuries before science did? You know, um, how, how did they figure out food safety practices centuries before science did? Because mm -hmm. the groups that did this stuff had more surviving offspring than the groups that didn't. But they also figured out a bunch of other stuff that we don't think about as obviously. Like all religious groups about have some sort of arbitrary self-denial ritual, whether it's, you know, Ramadan or Lent or Feast of the Firstborn. And, um, you know, when the, the these these groups begin to become softer, as, as we say, you know, progressivized, sort of moved to this urban monoculture, um, they threw out a lot of the stuff that seemed seemed like to to implement arbitrary trials on them without understanding that all of this stuff existed for a reason right it, it turns out that this likely strengthens the inhibitory pathways in your prefrontal cortex um but Wait, where so this gets the, really is the reason then survival well, yeah, I mean, we're not going to survive, but it gets it gets harder than this. Right. Unfortunately. So, so, so what, well, hold on. Do philosophy with me for a second, because it's really fascinating. It, the, the religious people that were practicing Lent and traditions and washing hands, 
Are you saying that that thing that they were doing was for uh, survival? In other words, allowing for kids that allowed for species, which allowed for human survival? Is that is that the ultimate Talos, is that why yeah, they so were doing this? That was what, in our thesis, now keep in mind, we come at this from a very secularist yeah, perspective, that's right. That's right. which that's has right. led to a very religious perspective for our family, which is odd to people, right? Like we come to religion from the standpoint of, well, it's only logical. Um, so uh, <laughs> if you if you approach religion from the secular standpoint and you just look at it through the eyes of cultural evolution, if I had two groups uh, historically that were living in a really hot area, like a desert, like the precursors to Islam. And one of those groups practiced ritualistic hand-washing and the other group didn't practice ritualistic hand-washing. The group that practiced ritualistic hand-washing is going to outcompete the group that didn't. Um, and this, this, leads to all sorts of things you see throughout religious tradition. So an example, it like, like increasing fertility rates, for example. So if you tell people, you know, don't have sex before marriage, then you're going to increase the motivation for marriage. You're going to decrease the number of kids who don't have fathers. And those kids typically end up being burdens to the community, you know, historically, or they end up mm -hmm. committing crime. You know, that's the Oliver Twist, right? It's all the orphans, yep, right? In, yep. in inner city London. Um, <clears throat> So these practices sort of came up historically because they led to either higher survival rates, higher fertility rates, or higher rates of intergenerational cultural transfer. So by this, what I mean is basically the rate at which a person's children stay within the religious system or within the cultural system that they have developed. Okay, okay. But st I, I, I see that. Just go one more with me. And the good in this is what? And so what, I, what I'm trying to say is, is it feels like there's a supposition or a presupposition in what you're, what you're saying that if these things happen, then it is good. But how are you identifying the good? No, I'm not saying it's good. It's just it led to survival. It's, it's not like a, uh, okay. a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the groups that did these things had more surviving offspring than the groups that Got didn't. Got it. And that's the good? Is that a good thing? No, it's not necessarily a good – I mean, uh, it, it's a completely amoral situation. Um, however – Okay. Um, and, and, and this is also where we get to progressivism and wokeism. It's not evil in our mind. It's just a mimetic virus. Um, mm. It's – it's, you know, people will say it's a religion, and I think that that's a wrong way to characterize it. In, in dogs, there's something called canine venereal tumors, and it's a transmissible form of cancer. Um, a, 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 wow. a, 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 the wokeism is to religion what canine venereal tumors are to a dog. It shares some of the DNA. We argue in our book, The Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, that it actually um, – evolved out of one sect of Quakerism and we point to a very specific time at which it evolved and we go through a bunch of like vestigial aspects of this one sect of Quakerism that it has and where they controlled the education system at that time of history and how they sort of accidentally injected this virus into the system. Now this sect of Quakerism has gone extinct. Pretty much every sect that was really susceptible to this virus has gone extinct at a disproportional rate to, to other groups uh, because mm. this virus is not interested in intergenerational thriving. Um, when the internet started and when the urban mega centers started within our society, if people are familiar with memetics, it's the idea that like ideas evolve. Um, an idea that is good, like once it infects somebody and it gets them to spread that idea, um, th that's, that's how ideas spread. Yeah. We have an alternate system, which we call like 
cultivars, um, which is that there's two types of evolving ideas. One are these simple viral ideas, like a meme, and that's what wokeism is. The other is an idea that primarily, yes, it spreads through um, uh, the way it augments the human mind and the way it gets that human to reproduce, but it spreads not through treating the human disposably, not like it's a parasite on the human, but through augmenting that human's individual fitness. And, the, and by fitness, I mean in a uh, evolutionary context, mm-hmm, i.e., mm-hmm. um, When a human is infected with this mimetic group, they are healthier, they are mentally healthier, and they have more offspring. That's what religions were because they had to outcompete other groups by helping the group that they were attached to. Um, Whereas with the rise of the internet and everything like that, it created an environment very similar to the environment in which um, uh, super microbes evolve. So if people are familiar with like super bacteria or super viruses, they often evolve in conditions where you have a bunch of immunocompromised individuals uh, all together um, in an environment uh, mm. that is that is really dense, i.e. usually in hospitals and stuff like that. Um, well, that's what the internet is. That's what these megacities are. You had all these people who had thrown out uh, the old software that they used to operate with, these religious systems, um, and they were thus like mimetically immunocompromised because these older systems had some sort of antiviruses built into them to prevent woo from infecting people, to prevent all of these things from infecting people. Um, and so uh, uh, it, it, it caused these, these spreading ideas and they spread very similar to cancers. Like if you, my background's in biology. When I look at the way okay. that like wokeism spreads between institutions, if you think of humanity as sort of existing in these nodal clouds where like each human represents a nodal point and they like interconnect with each other. And some of those might be like a company or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, once the virus begins to infect a company, um, it begins to do what a cancer would do, which it will like set up a tumor. Like this is what the canine venereal tumors would do. They'd set up a tumor somewhere in the organization that then starts saying, I'm very important to the body. Like it starts sending all the signals a cell would when it was really important. Um, and it will say, build a bunch of blood vessels around me. And that's what you're having when you have these like diversity and inclusion departments within a company. It's saying, if you get rid of me, racism will come. Like this is why I'm so important. And, and then see. it uses this tumor to send out, like do surveys within the company, everything like that, to try to infect as many nodes within the company with this new iteration of the virus. Now, uh, the problem is, is that the companies that stayed together, like a lot of people are like, but then why does it always seem to kill the host? Why does it keep killing the companies that infects? Why did Occupy Wall Street fall apart? Why did Chaz fall apart? Hmm. It's because the iterations of this virus that didn't kill the host, they end up staying collected within the host. But if they do kill the host, well, then all the little infected nodes spread out into the environment again, and they go and infect a bunch of new organizations. Um, Is this the same way? I think you're describing something like uh, a bad idea and how a bad idea spreads. Is this the same way that health spreads in an organ? In other words, does health start in an idea? Parallels to the way that like bacteria and viruses work. Um, it's it's not it's not an exact parallel, but it's easier to think about it this way than when you like. I think it's it's too easy 
to to see the people who are infected with this as specific bad actors sure, instead sure. of um uh or or see the organizations that are doing this as having some sort of like overminded malintent instead of it just being the aggregate of the ideas that happen to be out competing other ideas in the but moment do, do in other words did the did the good parts of what you're calling religion did they spread in the same way and and create no, 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 no. They usually spread through increasing the fertility rate and survival rate of the individuals that that um, have them. They're the, more like a symbiotic bacteria in your gut. They spread like the symbiotic bacteria in my gut. They don't outcompete other bacteria by like infecting other humans. Um, they compete through me having more offspring than other people. Gotcha. Um, and I those see. offspring being healthier than other people's offspring. So, so it's in the like old to- world, in, in the Orthodox Christian old world anyway, the fruit of a life well-lived is a child. Yeah. And so you're saying something like that idea, which gave birth to that child, that idea was properly ingested or properly moved about in the body, call, call it culture, that allowed for more children. It didn't necessarily allow for the spread of ideas. The ideas are manifest in the fruit we call children. Is that how you would see it? Yeah, yeah. You know, something that you brought up earlier was what morality and how morality plays a role in all this. Um, So this is just a phenomenon that happens. However, it seems to largely align with morality. By that, what I mean is the, it, the, the these these uh, you know viruses like like um, wokeism, right? Uh, they tend towards immorality uh, just because of what they get rewarded for doing. Whereas these older systems, because they get rewarded for helping a group survive, they tend towards more moral structures. Uh, simply because if, if if your job is to help your host be mentally healthy, have lots of kids and out compete other groups, you're typically going to bestow upon them a, a bunch mm. of positive gifts. Whereas if the only thing you care about is that the host gives up everything in their life to do nothing but fight for your idea to spread and to, um, you know, attack everyone who seems to be immune to this particular virus, it doesn't really care if you're happy or not or anything like that. And, and this is what you see, you know, when I people see. gave up a lot of these systems, you see these huge spikes in mental health issues within these groups. You see these huge spikes in sadness. They're just not very happy. You know, since Pew has been collecting data, conservative Americans have been happier than um, progressive Americans. And, and so is the virus, the wokeism, <laughs> there, it has a kinship with, say, Let's say uh, ISIS. It has a kinship with uh, maybe certain certain tribal religions where there's you know there's female f- female um, um, circumcision. There's where there's radical things happening that that I think a secular person would call untoward or ugly or not good. Is there something about wokeism that's similar to what we'd call bad? traditional religion are they connected so i don't believe in bad traditional religion i i think that so, so okay here's good what that's I good we can go down this. that road i like um that. so we can talk about isis and stuff like that in a second and it's weird that it has formed an alliance with them and we'll talk about why remind me to talk about why it's formed an alliance with them but here's the way i see things so long as people have the right to leave their religious tradition if they want to which isn't true within all religious traditions but i'm just saying suppose we believe that as a society we create a society um where people can leave the tradition 
if they didn't like it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you have some practice that we say is immoral. So let's say you say Jewish circumcision is immoral, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, then I would say, who who is best uh, um, positioned to judge whether Jewish circumcision is immoral? It is Jews who were circumcised, right? Um, if it turns out that the Jews who decide that Jewish circumcision is immoral, right, are also the Jews who don't have any kids, then what it turns out is something about the circumcision that we didn't understand, you know, coming from a different cultural group, was actually beneficial. And so I think when we look at these various groups, you know, um, uh, you know, whether whatever they're doing, it is for the people of that cultural group to decide um, what is immoral and moral for their cultural group. Now, one thing that is going to, if we're fighting for a pluralistic world, which is something I really believe in, one thing that is always going to be a threat, and we talk about the two threats to pronatalism. The first threat to pronatalism is this mind virus right now, but it will eventually burn itself out. Um, it will uh, eventually infect everyone who's susceptible to it, <laughs> sterilize nice. them. I mean, at the end of this, there's going to be a big economic crash, a big political change, but but eventually they'll all be gone. And then who's the next enemy? The next enemy is the cultural groups that are of these older traditions often or of evolutions of these older traditions, but that believe that only one tradition can be allowed to live. Um, they're highlandering it, as we would say it. Uh, in the end, there can be only one. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what ISIS is. And, and that is why they are evil from our perspective in that they – think that everyone other than them must die. But that is not something that's unique to just Islam. There are iterations of that ideology found across uh, various traditions. It's just so that recently um, uh, a lot of the most dangerous ones have come out of Islam. Um, but, but I, I didn't even say, if you look at human history, you know, that, you know, it's, 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 it's probably like, I you probably the reason we're seeing so many dangerous ones come out of Islam is Islam right now. You know, if you look at the Islamic golden age, it was much more recent than like the Roman golden age. And so they're just going through a dark age right now. Um, they, they are going through, Wait, hold on, what, unpack that. This is, this is helpful. Dark and light. There are definitely, you're, 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 you're making references to something like, less ignorant and, and more ignorant. So there's still got to be a good, there still has to be something by oh, which. Oh no, you're... I believe that. So, so, so there's is two. It, do you, let me just ask you this as someone who's making, by the way, guys, when you go and check out what Malcolm's doing with Simone, it's, it's really fascinating because it makes you, you can't stop thinking about it. Let me put it like that. And so, but my question, as I was watching a lot of your stuff and trying to understand it and reading, was there must be some eschatology to your philosophy. In other words, how are you making judgments in this world about what is good if there's no idea about what is good into the next? How are you able to ground what you're saying? This is this is what's tricky for me when I, when I'm listening. Yeah. To so you. this is a really interesting question. So so. Something and so far, everything I've been talking about in this podcast is of our philosophy about life as it relates to the secular. Like, I'm not trying to make any religious assumptions as I'm talking about things. I'm just talking about the world as it is in a secular context without saying true, good, and bad. Okay. Now, my wife and I actually have a religious system. Um, we have theological beliefs. We have an eschatology. However, it is a very strange one from a lot of people's perspective. 
Um, we we talk. I, I don't want to go too because the problem to. is, is when I talk to. about my religious beliefs, people would always feel like I'm trying to convert them or I'm trying to proselytize, and I don't want to come off as being somebody who is trying to proselytize and don't let me forget i've got to talk about why wokeism has formed an alliance with islam because this is actually really interesting a radical islam um i promise but, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that just try to help me with this because i know a lot of people who are listening are trying to figure out not because we want to know what your god is what what i think happens in the human mind soul is we always move toward the end we we know inherently in our being each morning that there's going to be a night it's, it's a part of how we understand ourselves. And so what was a resurrection is, at least for, for us Christians, is, is resurrection is an answer to why we go through the night. <laughs> why bother through the night? Because we know there's a day. And so what I'm trying to figure out is what your day is, what, what, what the sun coming up looks like for you. Yes. So, it doesn't really um, matter, but I'm interested because I think it helps inform so who a, you are. there's a few are. ways I can – okay, so I guess first I can describe it from the perspective of – uh, your audience. So um, we believe in in God, and we believe the 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 Christian revelations are accurate, but we believe in a God that we would call like a tesseract God. Um, so by that, what I mean is there's some woo people like. So people who are familiar with four-dimensional shapes, uh, a four-dimensional shape, we as humans cannot comprehend. Um, we cannot hold it in our mind. We are just completely unable to imagine a four-dimensional shape. But we can see the shadow of a four-dimensional shape within three-dimensional space. Mm. Um, this is also true of uh, three-dimensional shapes. So if you take a three-dimensional shape and you rotate it, you can see it in a two-dimensional space by looking at its shadow. Its shadow is the representation of a three-dimensional shape in two-dimensional space, okay? What some people will do when they're looking at various revelations from God, you know, they'll be looking at like the Jewish revelation and the various Christian revelations, is they'll, they'll use this and they'll say, well, let's take the average of that shadow of this cube. Like, let's take the average of the shadow that the cube is projecting. Um, and, or, or let's take all the, the sharp edges off. Like, let's only take the parts that are always covered by a shadow. Um, and this leads to woo. This, this is the path to ruin. Because when you, when you do this, you end up thinking that what's being projected is a circle. Um, when it's not a circle, every individual shadow projected by that cube is a full and complete revelation to, from the, the mindset, from the, the limited perspective of somebody who is living within a two-dimensional realm. Um, and that is largely how we think that religion works, is, is various. Now, we don't think that all religious traditions are true. We think uh, almost all of the actual true prophets are within the Judeo-Christian tree of religions. But we think that various iterations of the Judeo-Christian tree are actually holistically true and just different uh, projections. Um, and, and then this gets to a, like, why do we think that, um, well, when we, when we look at historically, I, I do not think that, that God would create one full revelation, you know, 2000 years ago, and then not have that revelation reach the Americas for a long time, not have that revelation be present to people before that time period that have like a church that has a schism and like one half has the correct revelation and the other half has the incorrect revelation. That seems capricious to me. Instead, what we believe is that God has always been trying to fully reveal himself as best as he can to different groups. Mm -hmm. um, and we think that different groups are being projected different 
shadow representations, um, uh, which represents the full of what they can comprehend about God at that part in humanity's history. Sure. And thus our duty as a as, as individuals or as a species is to um, sharpen our minds as much as possible so that we can uh, comprehend more the, the, the sort of um, uh, uh, a, a, a person can live according to their conscience, but if that conscience is flawed, then that individual is living in sin. Sure. And therefore it is a religious duty to sharpen one's intellect and improve one con one's conscience and look for more sources of truth. But um, what, uh, 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 what proselytization looks like for us is unfortunately very weird because what it means is I think that if a person comes to me and they go, well, what's true? I say, go back to the beliefs of your ancestors. Those are almost always going to be as close to truth as any individual can come to right now. Now, my wife and mine's theological structure is very different from that because we have become so separated from our ancestral group, which is the group that would be described in like Starslight Clodex's Puritan spotting and something like that. It was radical Calvinist groups. Um, but but they're not like the Calvinist groups today. They were groups that were very much like, let's try to invent new ways of interacting with religion that are more secular or whatever. So anyway, the way that we teach our kids about God um, is we, we basically tell them, you know, a million years from now, uh, do you think if humans are still around that we would be closer to the way that you would conceive of a human being today or closer to the way you would conceive of a God today? Um, and we say that that is what God is like it, a being like that isn't going to relate to time in the way that we relate to time. It's not going to relate to morality, even in the way that we relate to morality. Uh, but I do believe that it would have a truer sense of what is good and what is evil than we have. And I do think that it would try to share that truth with us in so far as, as we can understand it and, and, and where it um, is giving us, incorrect revelations it's because those are the incorrect revelations that we need to live a good life at that yeah. point in history the problem with all of this for us is a lot of people are like well why don't you just go back to old systems or choose some other old system it's because a lot of the old systems like the the this virus unfortunately has created an environment which is very different than the historic environments that a lot of these old systems evolved within they simply have more enemies than they've ever had you know if you look at like catholic majority countries in europe right now because we believe that trad Catholicism is one of the true shadows, right? Um, I see. Okay. They have a fertility rate of only 1.3 right now. That is desperately low. Like, like that is that is almost comically low. That means uh, for for you know every person living in one of those countries, it's it's uh, 0, 0. 0.65 children is being born. You know, they're almost halving every generation. It's it's insane. Um, Mormons fell below replacement rate like three years ago. I'm like, when Mormons fall below replacement rate, that's not like a canary in the coal mine dining. That's the miners' skin slothing off. Like, we are in a catastrophic black death level situation here worse than the black death actually if you look at the intergenerational reduction in population we're looking at um and we see Go, this as hold on malcolm one second from god yeah w work with me one second so that was really helpful <laughs> because uh in, in terms of talos so that was very helpful because there's a morning there i see it there's a hope so for most people who come through the I'm I'm guessing because I read a lot of your stuff that the scientific method, something like objectivism on some level, is a positive thing for, for you for your wife. It, in other words, you trust studies done through the Enlightenment model. But let me just let me ask mm. you this: 
let's say that you're willing to put some, for instance, if I see a study done, uh, you know, at Harvard, I'm not sure I even want to read it anymore. But let's just say something like their study has something like uh, a, a reality and truth because it's based on some sort of objective scientific method that has something to do with good or true. But hold on. Most people who go down that road, and I think you're one of them, I went to Columbia, you guys are, you know, beautifully educated. Most people don't end where you're ending, but I think it might be changing. Do you think a rationalist ride through the Western systems now can lead to something like a new re religion? I don't like the word religious, a new spiritualism. Do you think it has to oh, end? Oh gosh, the way you like the word spiritualism more than religion? <laughs> well, I don't know. I I hate here, here, spiritualism. I, I am. I am. Let me, I, let me I, explain I, why. One of the we, things let me explain why. I think religion is better understood the way the Latins did as simply ligaments that bind together a worldview. In other words, everybody is religious. So so there hasn't been a non-religious human. The question is, yeah. is what who is their God? And so who is the highest good in that in that in that cult? And so I think you're in a cult. I don't know how big it is, but you have a highest good and you're moving toward it. And you've identified population decrease or, you know, deplosion as a problem. What I'm really interested in is, do you think rationalist people, people trusting in reason, are they all going to end up sort of where you guys are on some level? The survivors to will. Most won't. The survivors will. You know, you, you talk about these uh, scientific studies and stuff like that. I believe that the original intent of the scientific method worked. Like, test reality, when you get something that's predictive, it means that you have mm -hmm. a better understanding of, like, what's actually going on in the physical world. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the priests of the secular world, the academics, have been completely corrupted by the virus. Um, and they are now just heretical cultists. Um, from my perspective. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, uh, so interesting. I, I can I can look to 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 their studies and sometimes glean truth, but I need to look at them with an incredible amount of skepticism. You know, I need to say, is this only confirming something that they wanted us to believe? It, how did they how could they have fudged this data? Could they fudge that all the time now? Like it is so we actually, in our Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, one of our books, we have this thing called the Criteria of Authenticity. Um, and it just goes through uh, like a set of criteria you can apply to something like a study to try to determine if that study is accurate or not. Like like if oh, it is interesting. a true representation. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it's stuff like, like if a study says something like, and it comes out of Harvard and it says something that a woke person wouldn't want to be true, then it's almost certainly true because they wouldn't <laughs> be publishing that. Uh, if, if, if there wasn't overwhelming evidence in that direction. Um, whereas if, you know, a, a big oil company publishes something that says global warming is a major problem, then that's much more likely to be true. You know, so there's various ways you can sort of split the information uh, to try to determine who's telling the truth and who's not. But we live in a murky environment right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I would say we're seeing right now is in the secular world is a second reformation. Um, if you look at what happened during the Reformation, it was one cultural group that said truth is obviously best determined by people who spent their entire life studying it. 
And obviously you need some sort of central bureaucracy to determine the hierarchy of those individuals. And then another group of individuals who said, no, that central hierarchy can become corrupted. And therefore all of the information that is being disseminated by the experts can become corrupted. So truth should always be determined by the individual. And this is what we're seeing in science right now. This is what we're seeing with the reaction to COVID and stuff like that is the, the high priests, the central bureaucracy, academia has become so corrupted that now, you know, you have people like me like the martin luther nailing on the wall yeah, you know yeah, yeah that's this right. is a corrupt institution right. it has right. sold itself to that's satan right. and right. it is nothing but a force of evil in our society at this point um and that i think that like i think happened after the reformation um the the forces against the catholic church caused the catholic church to internally reform and become a much better and and again holy institution and i think that if we have a reformation within academia and we get genuine competition with the academic system we can have the academic system return to something that is leading to the types of developments that led to cars and flight and space travel that came out of this period of gentlemen scientists and stuff like this um so uh and our nuclear power plants and our, you know, um, it, it at one point was clearly doing something. It had some clear access to some sort of truth at one point. But if you look at, is it is it inventing anything anymore? No. Um, it's just siphoning money and talent from our society. Now you talk about young people joining this movement. This is what we see. This is what we lead. Like this is, if you're like, who, who are Simone and Malcolm's like weirdo group of followers? They're mostly people, you know, I got my graduate degree at Stanford. She got her graduate degree at Cambridge. They're people with similar sorts of backgrounds to that. They're people who often grew up in families that were very secularist and are now trying to rebuild yeah. uh, some yeah. sort of, uh, 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 connection with their history but they're looking for ways to justify going back to that path and people will say well that'll never work the way that my wife and i got here like is we said oh we've just looked at all the data and we should probably create some like philosophical structure for our kids some religion for our kids some holidays for our kids and then we started practicing them and then we started believing them and that's what what happens with a lot of these people today that used to be the way you convince somebody to join a religion as you would say you know here are the arguments for god right whereas today you say look at what's happened to everyone yeah. who's left yeah that's yeah that's you don't have to the rational conversation about God is almost pointless now. It's it, You don't even need to go down that road. Yeah. People are actually living within the depression. You know, they're like, something's wrong. And at that point, <laughs> at that point, when someone feels just sad, <laughs> it's not that hard to talk to them about deep stuff at that point. They're already there, you know? <laughs> yeah. But there is there is a light at the end of this fertility collapse. Right. Which which is that, um, you know, if I have eight kids and those kids have eight kids and we do that for just 11 generations. We'll have more descendants than live on Earth today. I don't say that to say that the future should be all my descendants. I would view that as a failure. You know, I'm fighting for pluralism. But what I do believe is that um, uh, uh, the the few people alive today and, and almost all of these people are on the conservative side of the political spectrum, you know, whether they are traditional theological conservatives or this weird new brand that my wife and I represent, um, we are going to replace them. There is a great replacement happening all around the world, but it is of the people of these older systems and these newer like reformed systems right, right, uh, replacing right, right these 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 in, infected virally infected urban monocenters um and that we can take this you know one of the books i really liked as a kid was uh, 
the God Emperor of Dune. I don't know if you've read it, um, but in it, the sort of the plot was is this guy who could see all futures. He was trying to create a future where like war and strife between these very different groups ended. And what he realized is he needed to create one totalitarian fascist enemy that was so totalizing that it convinced all these groups that historically always hated each other that they needed to build durable ways to work together so this never happened again. And that's what I see sort of this wokeism urban monoculture doing right now is it is creating a world where all of these previous, you know, conservative groups that used to be at each other's throats are now finding common cause and reason to build a durable alliance with each other, uh, which I think um, is going to make the future a much brighter place in the world today. You know, when I was in Korea, I think a hundred years ago, less than a century ago, um, Japan was able to motivate its citizens to come into this country and kill, you know, millions of people horribly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look at the, the collapsing fertility rate in Korea today, and I'm like, who's going to occupy these skyscrapers? Who's going to occupy this land in a hundred years? I'm like, well, they could get immigrants, but not from Japan because their fertility rate's falling, not from China because their fertility rate's falling. These countries historically, the ones that won, were the ones that were able to motivate their children to go out there and kill other people's children and take their land. Tomorrow, in the world of tomorrow, the people who win are going to be the people who can love better than other people. And by that, what I mean, it's not just sex. If I just spam a bunch of kids out there, but I don't give them a good childhood, they're not going to stay in my culture, right? You have to be able to have a lot of kids, but also raise them in a way where they are excited about who they are, excited about how they were raised and want to create more of that. And at the end of the day, I think this is why Israel's doing so well in terms of fertility rate, because this is something that uh, Judaism has been particularly good at adapting to, Um, not because of anything unique about Judaism. I think it's just because uh, the Jewish culture has been an urban specialized culture for a long time. So it's been exposed to this virus for longer than other cultures, and it's had a longer time to adapt. You actually see this in the U.S. with Catholics. So Catholic groups um, who immigrate to the U.S., their fertility rate falls really quickly. Um, And while Catholic fertility rates are falling in the U.S., they're falling much slower than the immigrant populations that haven't had as long a time to adapt to this sort of viral condition. Is there is there a connection between self-esteem, education, um, falling fertility rates, narcissism? Is 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 there some sort of bomb that that's that's created by that type of education that we saw starting in the 70s, 60s and 70s. Uh, I've always thought that as an educator, that there's some connection. Do you see it or perhaps not? I mean, we're completely recreating the education system. That's one of our big problem projects right now. I think it's going to come out in Q1 this year. It's called the Collins Institute. People can check it out at collinsinstitute.org. It is the key thing. So if you look at the key conflict in our society, you know, as this urban monoculture, the way it draws people into it, Um, is it tells them that if you follow our system as a community and if you can convince everyone else to follow our system, you won't have to feel pain anymore. Um, And and that's what what it's optimizing around. It's not optimizing around equality or anything like that. It's optimizing around a reduction of in-the-moment emotional pain. This is why it does things like hand out fentanyl on the streets. Like, obviously, that causes more long-term pain, but it does it because it removes in-the-moment 
pain. You know, telling somebody that being fat is unhealthy, uh, obviously that causes more long-term happiness if they can adjust to that, uh, but, but it hurts them in the moment. So it, 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 this, this mindset is very bad at motivating sacrifice, and children are sacrifice, right? So um, it cannot motivate intergenerational fertility, and the only way it can maintain its membership and its numbers is by recruiting the children of nearby demographically healthy cultural groups. Well, how does it do that? It does that with the education system. And as it's losing more and more members, as its own members become more and more infertile, it has to become more and more aggressive, more and more crazy in the ways that it is utilizing the educational bureaucracy to convert people. Um, and this is horrifying to, to look at. If you, like People who, who look at the education system right now and don't have kids in it and haven't seen what's going on in public schools right now, it is not an incremental decline from where we were when we were in school. It is a completely different beast of evil. Um, and uh, you know, you talk about small changes. I do think that there were small changes that were made to the educational system in the 70s that had massive effects that we're dealing with today in society. I mean, I think one of the biggest uh, was this idea of always call an authority. Uh, that's when this was really introduced. You know, I remember as a kid, uh, you know, I had this one instance where um, a teacher told my mom once, uh, uh, you know, that I had very appropriately and like a good boy um, told on another kid for, for doing something he wasn't supposed to. And my mom was like, why did you do that? Like he was, he was bullying another kid. My mom was like, that's what you have fists for. She's like, snitches get stitches, um, you know, and it's because historically what we understood is that morality was a personal responsibility to learn to enforce within our environments and within ourselves. And now morality, because of this environment of always go get an authority, if two kids get in a fight, both of them are equally in trouble. You yeah, should always is, default to authority smart, has Marco. led to a generation that mm -hmm. is just defaulting to authority, defaulting to authority. And that's what they're doing to the mob. They don't think for themselves. They never learn to think for themselves. Um, and um, un unfortunately, I, I, I think that this is an area where this wasn't caused by wokeism. This was actually caused by the satanic panic and the religious movement. Um, specifically, what happened was, is during this period of like the 70s and 80s, um, a lot of parents uh were of different religious traditions and they didn't want their kids being taught morality within the school system which was mm -hmm. good right yeah, like they I shouldn't have been this. taught morality in the school system because if a teacher tells them well how do you know what's right and what's wrong well then of course you're either going to end up invalidating the jewish kids or the christian kids or the muslim kids or some group right the hindi kids um so uh teachers just stopped engaging with that topic so much so that they created a bubble where people didn't learn how to ask these questions themselves and For that sure. is historically how we kept our tradition strong is we learned why we believe that god does things this way and this way and people just didn't learn to ask those questions because it looked too much like questioning religious tradition and it has led unfortunately i think to the erosion of many historic religious traditions um which should have done a better job of maintaining these internal community-wide debates and understanding that a debate within the community is what keeps it healthy not a sign of heresy heresy is is you know these intentionally malevolent movements uh well sure. not intentionally malevolent but but intergenerationally malevolent movements and they truly are malevolent you know when we talk about antinatalism if you look at this movement that's growing within the um 
secular world today, particularly the far left. When I'm at a party in New York and I mentioned falling fertility rates and I'm like, you know, humanity could go extinct. They're like, isn't that a good thing? Like, like, is that was, really was going to so be bad? my question. What's wrong with that? Like, try to help, enlighten us on that. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I have I have answers, but I, I wonder, like, so so there's fewer people. What's the problem? I don't really get it. Well, <clears throat> help I mean, me out with so that. There's, there's two questions here. One is the, the, the fewer people, and that causes all sorts of problems of our economic systems, which we'll get to. But they they believe something different. They believe in negative utilitarianism, um, which is to say that suffering is the only thing that matters. That if I don't bring somebody into this world. Um, I am not responsible for any happiness they don't have. But if I do bring somebody into the world, I am responsible for their suffering. Therefore, it's always morally, uh, because they think that the only thing that matters is human emotional states, right? Um, mm -hmm. Therefore, they, they think that it's always better to err on the side of not bringing people into the world. And they genuinely, you know, if you look at the Ethelism subreddit, if you look at these various communities, they are genuinely, like, like Ethelism, uh, which is life spelled backwards, you can look up the subreddit or the antinatalist movement, they want to do do things like end all life on this planet. When I talk to some of them and I have debates, they're like, no, we don't want to end humanity yet because we need to ensure that we can kill all life on the planet before humans go extinct to make sure that uh, no other form of sentient life then evolves. Um, like they that, are genuine supervillain crazy craze. Um, but it's a growing that's a, movement. That's a group of people that those people exist as a group speaking to one another. About yeah, yeah. check goals? out the Ethelism subreddit. Check out uh, antinatalist stuff. Um, they're they're bigger. Not all not all antinatalists believe this, but the Ethelists believe this, and so do the negative utilitarians. Uh, if you want to read a book on this, better not to have been by David Benatar is sort of the the tome that they use. He's a professor, um, mm -hmm. so, of course. Um, so. Uh, yeah, it is, it, is, it is horrifying how evil they are, and it's something I wanted to get to because we had talked briefly on this, and it is important to understand is why do they form alliance with these traditional structures? Yeah, like talk about Islam? that, and then I want to give you this test, by the way. I really okay, give you the test. Yeah, but, yeah. but why do they form these alliance with structures like Islam? And it's the same reason that they are intrinsically anti-Semitic and why the progressive movement always trends towards anti-Semitism, as we have seen recently. Um, and it is because they believe a core aspect of this world framework that they have created for themselves is all differences between groups. Like if one group has more money than another group or one group has more whatever than another group, all differences between groups are caused by oppression and unfair dealing. Um, that they, they, you cannot have any sort of group difference that is caused either by the group's own culture or own behavior or own actions, because every culture is, uh, especially cultures they don't know about or interact with as much. Every culture is equal. Every culture, is, every, every people is equal. And what this leads to is then they'll see a cultural group that seems to be out competing other groups, like the Jewish cultural group. You know, they, they, if you look at income, they make more. If you look at like Nobel prize winners or people, in office, they have more people. Well, and they say they were discriminated against in the past. That's impossible. You cannot be discriminated against and successful. Therefore, they must not have actually been discriminated against. It must all be some big, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, ploy. They must be the architects of all oppression. Um, 
And then you look at the Muslim groups, and they're typically from poorer countries. Therefore, they must be the oppressed group. It can't be anything that they've done within their countries. Um, they must be the truly oppressed people. And then you point out that, well, they are oppressing groups so that within your environments are considered like safe groups, like, like they are throwing gay people off roofs, right? And they're like, no, that cannot be. That must be fake news because it is impossible for one oppressed group to hurt another oppressed group. It, mm -hmm. it just doesn't follow this, this framework they have. I see. So it's a type of Puritanism. The, the belief is held up mm. high that equality. Puritans have been maligned. Puritans didn't believe what we believe that Puritans believed. Puritans, when people say Puritanism, they're actually talking more about the Quaker groups, whereas the Puritan groups were much less. Uh, Puritans believed in the elect. They believed that there were, uh, you know, they would never have had a philosophy like this. They would have been like, oh, well, these people are just not saved. Like, that's why they're doing worse. Well, I get it. There's a, well, the, here's what I meant is that equality has become the highest, the highest good. And so in that yeah. sense, they apply that to everything as if, as, as Puritans would apply notions of the elect or, or, or salvation, there's, yeah. there's a highest good application without any sense of um, uh, compassion or humility or uh, one, a willingness one to second see before we move to other. the next thing i need to plug in my computer i'm almost out of batteries okay i, I was going to set it up but i thought we'll, i had more time no worries cut it we'll cut it and get back to it so so malcolm uh first of all you you've helped me think about about 20 different things one of the things i'm thinking about is i like presuppositions the notion that most of us are working on what we've been given and what we've been given has been inherited through our culture, but also through our genes and also through the teachings of our parents and our friends. And so we start there. I think the Enlightenment says something like, well, you can go deeper. You can go to a deeper set of truth, maybe found in math, logic, reason. But I'm not so sure that that experiment is going to end well, because I think ultimately there has to be some sort of eschatology that explains, like we talked about before, Talos and where we're going mm -hmm. beyond the material world. But anyway, with that in mind, we've created a little exam, a little test, five questions, five, just five. And I'd like to give it to guests when they come on. And it says something like, how do you see the world? And where does it place you uh, on our very mathematic, on our very scientific lidometer? You ready? You ready for this? Okay. Okay. So, so the lidometer is an attempt to try to figure out where people stand vis-a-vis Pre-enlightenment, post-enlightenment, or old world, new world. Here we go. You're going to answer the question with a three is a strongly agree. Zero is a strongly disagree. Two is agree. One is disagree. So zero, strongly disagree. Three, strongly agree. One and two in between. You ready? Real. It's very scientific, Malcolm. It's so highly scientific. Three that is strongly agree and one is strongly disagree. So three is strongly agree, zero strongly disagree. Oh, okay, one, two is agree. Yeah, one is disagree generally, two is agree. Okay, okay. So here we go. Um, when you die, you you won't really die all the way. It's more like you're asleep or something, sort of waiting for a next world of some sort. Three, strongly agree. Two, agree. One, disagree. Zero, strongly disagree. 
Don't be mad. I know what you want to do. You want to fight. You want to fight the the presupposition. No, I need to. I can explain our view on this. I, I love strongly it. disagree. Um, but 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 we don't think that you die exactly. Well, we don't think that you meaningfully are alive either. We think that humans are intergenerational entities, um, and that that like yes, me, my physical body does die but I do live on in the impact I have had in the lives of my kids and other people. And that that is a much more meaningful term of living on because, you know, suppose in a thousand years, I was still alive, right? Like I lived for a thousand years. Right. Um, and and uh, that person was still meaningfully me a thousand years from now. Then my life, like living for a thousand years would have meant nothing because I wouldn't have improved enough for it to be worth me being alive. And uh, if I improve enough for it to be worth me being alive, if I have changed so much in that thousand years, well, I'm probably not going to be that different from any one of my distant descendants then. So then what's the point of clinging to life? Um, okay. So, so we don't believe in a metaphysical uh, uh, reincarnation or anything like that. We believe in a physical reincarnation, which is your kids. I got you. I got you. That's helpful. All right. I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to put you a zero on that one. Is that cool? <laughs> yeah. We'll do zero. I think you said zero. Don't get me wrong. I know that there's problems with the test. However, it's fun and it also yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. So question two, the best way for, for me or for you, the best way for you, Malcolm, to know yourself is to ask someone else about you. Three, strongly agree. Two, one, Strongly zero. disagree. Strongly disagree. Got it. All right. And we can talk about these. Number three, remember, they've they've gone through the furnace of scientific <laughs> obligation. Well, so I mean, here's that three. That one I just think is, is I, I don't believe in externalizing largely. I think people should be responsible for their. Wow, what? For knowing themselves. For knowing themselves. Yeah. Question three. When you carry oh, a picture oh of God, someone sorry. you love in your purse or your wallet, like, you know, it's a picture of your wife. You're actually carrying that person around with you like they are there somehow, actually close to you. Uh, if I'm carrying a picture around of my wife? Yeah. No. Strongly disagree. Got it. Got it. All right. So in that sense, it's, it's ink on a paper. There's it's ink on a paper. Yeah, it's 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 I know yeah, I, I actually so this comes to something that you had talked about earlier where you said you don't believe that anyone doesn't have religion. And I do believe that some people don't have religion, but I don't think it looks like secularism. I think when you drain the pond of the human mind, if you drain it of traditions, if you drain it of reason, you 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 find a persistent topography at the bottom of this ocean but it doesn't look like secularism it looks like sort of pre-evolutionarily coded woo um that leads to a lot of like <laughs> behaviors like wishy thinking is one of them where somebody thinks that something is more like like the secret is an example of wishy thinking um that that old thing where like if you you know uh, uh picture something it's more likely to be true but another thing that's really common within this this drained ocean of what we call super soft cultures um is uh well, you, you see a lot of like uh, fetishism. And when I say fetishism, I don't mean in a sexual sense. I mean yeah. the carrying of magical fetish items that they believe have some sort of a property to them beyond the material or physical property. 
Um, and what you're describing, the idea that I would have a, a picture of my wife and that picture would have some sort of magical property, I would view that as a sign of somebody who has fallen into super soft religious culture yeah. um, where, where they're going back to these sort of polytheistic, animalistic beliefs about right. the world. Right. Um, but yeah. That's, that is, man, that's, it's good to have you. I'm serious. It's very helpful to see the insight. Um, because one of the things that's really impressive when I was getting to know your work is the degree to which you were plugged in to the scientific process. Like it's not a joke. You take this seriously while at the same time trying to, you know, adapt to humanity, to, to our nature, which is, constantly in question it was just constantly in pursuit of something higher and, and good. Yeah. I, I i think you are a great example of something that's emerging and and you're a good spokesperson for for this new thing but it's it's a well, blessing so to this have is, this is the way i would word it um if, if you go back to the reformation example right do i think that the catholic church that, that needed the reformation that it had genuinely become corrupt and that selling indulgences was evil and stuff like that. Yes, I genuinely believe all of that. And then if I was somebody who at the time said that, then somebody would be like, so you hate God. It's like, no, I don't hate God. And then they're like, so you hate the church. And it's like, no, the church just needs to reform. Like it's, it's, it's genuinely become corrupted by bureaucrats and bureaucrats corrupt everything they touch, you know? And sense. when I look at the scientific method and the scientific process, people are like, so you say that the university system has become evil and is destroying people and is leading to all these negative things. So you must hate the scientific method. And it's like, no, the system is corrupted, but it can be reformed. Right. There is still good in the core of a lot of these ideas in the older traditions of a lot of these universities, but it's not the system they're using now. I'd say that like the scientific method is less of the problem than like the peer reviewed publication status hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you, t you talked about that in one of your podcasts. I highly recommend you guys go listen to that. Based camp is the podcast. If you want to check it out, I yeah, do it Based with my camp, wife. Yeah. Who... I want to give you that cred, man, because you guys go <laughs> into that. And I found that in my academic studies too. It's like, wait a minute. They're talking to each other. Let me do. Let's do two more questions, and we'll oh, give you your on. we'll yeah, give you your great. exam grade. Yeah, we got to get your grade. So, and by the way, this is a terrible educational uh, guys. A terrible way to teach is multiple choice, but we're doing it anyway. So here we go. Uh, question four: Respect isn't earned. Respect is owed by me or by you, Malcolm, to others. Respect isn't earned. Respect is owed by you to others. Oh, oh, strongly disagree. <laughs> strongly Respect disagree. is always earned. Um, people who say, anyone can demand respect, you know, and, and then they can use that to manipulate the way you should act around them because they can determine what is disrespectful mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is where all this like trauma narrative and stuff like that, one of the things we talk about in some of our stuff is how the psychological industry um, has begun to adapt to many of the practices that were previously used by cults, particularly Scientology. Like modern day, like if you go to a therapist in 2024, you are actually getting a very similar experiment if you went to a Thetan reading in the 1980s. Wow, um, wow. It is insane because they have developed practices that build dependency, um, where it used to be what they were trying to do was 
to help you get over trauma. Now what they help you do is identify trauma right. so right. that you can only be happy if you're continuing to see them. Because again, just regular evolutionary pressure, the iterations of psychology that developed these dependencies within people outcompeted the iterations that didn't. Well, one of the things that they have done through spreading this sort of cult-like information and way of seeing the world is this idea that anything um, that hurts you or makes you feel bad, you know, we've talked about this, is like an intrinsically bad thing and must be stopped. And they will use different words to create this gating. They may use the That's word right. respect. Right. They may use the word offended. They may use, but any uh, uh, a credit that we give to somebody without them having to earn it can always be demanded and expanded by that individual. Um, and so it's something that we should never do and never do for ourselves. You know, a lot of people, one of the things I hate most, one of the, the worst things, you know, this is love yourself. No, fucking be somebody worthy of loving. If you don't love yourself, maybe you fucking shouldn't. You know, maybe, sorry, I don't mean to curse. Maybe no, I get it. It's okay. I maybe, get it. And, and this is something we also say, you know, with, with, with um, marriage, right? Like we wrote a book, The Pragmatist Guide to Relationships on Marriage. And I say, you know, the most perverse marriage is a marriage based on the foundation of love. You know, when somebody says to another person, um, I will love you no matter what, it's like, what? What? No, that's a stupid thing. You know, no, no, love them. Instead, what you should be promising is I will continue to strive to be somebody worthy of your love, um, which is a very different promise. So that that's man. I, you got to come back to the podcast now that I actually I taught a course, the history of love, where we essentially is it was a look at at marriage over the ages. But really, that notion, marriage and and love and how they go together or don't. I think you're saying something really true, but I actually would just add, and then I got another question for you, and then we'll give you your score. I, I would add, it might be, yes, you're right, but the commitment or the willingness to stay with, with the unhealthy person, because we're all unhealthy on some level, that is the act of love. Self-sacrifice is the act of love. So I hear what you're saying, and I know what you're saying. The trick is, is how to in a marriage, how to create the commitment without, without actually, you know, creating some sort of masochistic pain in your world. So I hear you. I, I, that's another conversation. Darn it, Malcolm, you're getting me going down this other road. We have, right. a, we have a video on um, monogamy in, in this. If you want to talk about a spicy topic here, uh, and we, you can always have me back. Will you come back? Uh, Will you please? I'm serious. I'm serious. Yeah, oh, I'd be happy to. Where I point out that both sides have a toxic view of monogamy, um, where the left thinks that people don't owe anyone anything. You know, you get this full-on polyamory, right, which is right. – uh, I, I do not think a stable relationship structure for most individuals. Um, I think that then there's this other view of monogamy, which is that your partner, no matter how you change, no matter what you do, should continue to desire you the same amount that they did, you know, when, when, when you first got married. And instead, you should strive for a monogamous relationship, but because your partner doesn't need or want anyone else, because both of you are doing everything you can to fulfill that partner's needs. And this some, used to be something we understood. That was part and parcel with monogamy. But now we've got this new group of people, you know, they get married, they get fat, they, they stop caring about their yes, partner they start <laughs> having petty arguments with their partner and they feel no fear from doing this they feel no uh right. my wife calls it dread game monogamy because uh they know that, that given your cultural group you're never going to leave them right um and, and so we need um because historically i mean the reason why monogamy doesn't even like 
like when we think about monogamy in our society, we can talk about this in another podcast, but it doesn't work in the same way it used to, even if you commit to it, because you don't have a community that's going to shame you for not committing to it. You can just leave and go to another there city you or go. something. So, so very, even if I get divorced, I don't have the true. same externalities around monogamy, which means that um, a lot of relationship structures are just not as stable as they would have historically been. Um, but when we had these communities that shamed us, you know, they'd also shame you for getting fat after you got married or pregnant or something like that. But today, no, they're going to affirm you for that because people, there's so many communities they can choose between. They don't choose between the companies, the, the communities that have these sort of evolved, emotionally healthy ways of dealing with things. Right. They go for the communities that affirm them the most. Uh, and these are the communities that say, oh, it doesn't matter that you got fat after you got pregnant. Everybody does that. You know, um, uh, yeah. It's a very, by the way, I highly recommend that voice in the future for more of your podcasts. I like that. It was helpful. It was your acting voice right there. Helped me to understand that person. <laughs> a great deal. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm doing my, I love it. What are you talking about? It's, it's by the way, it's heavy things lightly on here. So we, we can't take ourselves too seriously. This is beautiful though, by the way. And I actually think you are right in the middle of describing something like a very old world marriage when it's properly understood. One more question for you, which I like. And then we get you a score. Um, so here's question five. I hope and expect to take my parents in and have them live with me, with me when they get old and affirm. Or the same question, just in reverse. I expect to live near my kids, preferably even in their home when I get older and infirmed. Oh, this is an interesting question. So when I get older, I believe I have a duty to help my children raise their own children. Uh, by the way, the reason you keep seeing green lasers on my face, people might be wondering, is we have this set up in our children's room for future day. It's like a galaxy thing on the ceiling. And oh, that's very part cool. Part of it is this laser display. <laughs> um, and they keep shining on my face to make it look like I have little green spots on my face. Um, so yeah, I believe that you have a duty to help your children. However, uh, my wife and I, and this is one of our more extreme beliefs, which a lot of your audience is probably going to disagree with. Um, I think that as soon as a parent uh, is no longer useful to their children or moving uh, their family further, like if they become genuinely infirm, like they have become a burden to the family, then they also have a duty to take their own lives. Um, that parents exist for the service of their children and that children should never exist for the service of their parents. And if I look historically at my family, um, this is something that's actually happened a few times in my family a few generations ago, uh, where you know the mother would come live with the family when she was old and infirmed and crotchety and ended up breaking up marriages, destroying the family. This was, um, you know, historically most of the the older groups. We had a, I think a a more mature relationship with life and death. And uh, well, we didn't just. But we did. People would, you know, even in medieval Europe, like leave their elderly people in the woods at a certain age. Like some, you, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. Well, I, I, <laughs> I mean, think that, that a wasn't culturally acceptable. value is their utility. <clears throat> um, and this is a very harsh view, uh, but it is it is the view that we have. Um, and it means that we have a different relationship than a lot of conservatives do to the, you know, like what's going on in Canada right now with the assisted suicide and stuff like that, where people are like, isn't it horrifying that the government's uh, pushing suicide on all these people who are like leeches on the state system them? Like they reach out and they're like, hey, give me my welfare shot. <laughs> this is a left-hand like, turn. Suicide? Yeah. I'm like, that's not a bad system. Um, so then how would you rate this? Uh, <laughs> I generally expect to live near my kids, even preferably in their house when I get old and affirmed. No. 
Yeah. I, I, I would rate it very, very high as I get old, as I get affirmed. Yeah, I'll live near them so long as I am of utility to them and then I won't be living anymore. So, yes, 100 percent. I'm, I'm on board with that one. Uh, so strongly agree, in fact, that that you <laughs> you expect to be close to your parent, to your kids as you get older and that they'll take care of you in that sense. No, they won't take care of me. I'm taking care of them when they uh, need to take care of me. That's when I have become a, a, a drain on society. Oh, this is fascinating. How would, so this is the, we have to rewrite this question for you. So, because you do hope to take, you do expect to take your parents in when they get old? No, oh, I don't no, think my so. parents, because they're not of utility to my family. Got it. So I think this is a strongly disagree or, or yeah, disagree. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, I think so. We'll give you a one on that, because I see you're going both directions a little bit. Okay, so then out of these five questions, you've achieved the score of one. That's neither good nor bad, but that does not make you a Charlemagne. So the Charlemagne is full retro. That's a few yeah, scores. That's one of my 50. ancestors, by the way. I'm a direct descendant. Oh, is that true? Is that yeah. right? Well, according to this very scientific uh, test I've given you, you are far away from those relatives. You're not a villager. You're not a suburbanite. But you are. You you've almost won the Francis Bacon Award for old world thinking. For you, has the same appeal as placing leeches on an open sore. You're, you're so light that you enjoy concocting new ways to study the effects that scientific studies have on science students. You're very connected to the process of figuring yeah. out life through the new world lens of the Enlightenment, according to this test. Yes. I think it's accurate. Yeah, yeah, yes, I agree. I mean, if you look at the core prophet of our religious system, Winwood Reed, I mean, he is one of the key figures of the enlightenment you know if yeah, you look at sure. his writings he was very popular during that period if you look at the the sort of lifestyle that we affirm and celebrate when we are thinking about the ideal trad life it is the trad life of the victorian gentleman scientist yeah, uh, yeah and explorer yeah, yeah. it is not the so it so it is an enlightenment life uh but it is a very different uh, uh, trajectory from the Enlightenment that, that mainstream society has gone down. All right. So two things. One is you've helped me and a lot of the people who come on to this. We just did a really cool Art of Tamada. That's where Topher, our, our common friend, was. And we were trying to figure out what is it that, that creates health in our current modern, really postmodern society. You gave a voice to a lot of the intersections that are going on between folks who are traditionally maybe Orthodox Christian or traditionally of, of the old world and how there's folks in the new world who are starting to see the same thing, maybe from a different side, right, of the cube. And I loved your idea of the cube and reality and the shadow. It was very instructive of, of faith, I think. So listen, brother, that's one. Thank you for that. Two is um, I want you to come back because... I saw a giant, beautiful rabbit hole that'll lead us to a lot of cool answers in your ideas about education and and um, sort of. Oh, yeah, the, I love that. Yeah, I think I, education and relationships. Well, there's three parts. So this podcast we did love as an idea in your world. I would love to tease that out. So love. Yeah, love and the notion of relationships. How? What is that thing? in your world and two is education. I'd like to talk about that more. Let's, let's do that. And, it, and I don't know what you're doing on your podcast, but if you ever want to talk about 
what it looks like in Africa vis-a-vis these ideas, what, what it looks oh, like. Oh, I love in, that. Yeah. In, in we, do, we do guests all the time. Um, uh, I'd have to set something up. We've, we've recorded too many guest episodes recently, so we need to space them out a bit. I get that. Totally get that. The 100%. problem with guest episodes for us, um, and I can say, it's your audience, if you regularly have guests and you do a good job, that's usually pretty rare for a podcast because the problem with guests is that they're so variable in quality. Um from the perspective of your audience, you know, you can think you've got someone who's going to be controversial and push limits and then they're on air and all of a sudden they clam up. Right. You know, so, uh, but if I'm on, on the show with my wife, I know, you know, if I, if I do like two thirds of the episodes like that or three, uh, you know, three quarters, um, I'm, I'm always going to have at least some level of interest. Um, the, the episode we did today, speaking of education and this stuff is on when you should start teaching sex education. And uh, how deep oh, you should go. Guys, sex education, go listen to that. And also your episode on Dinks, Dual Income dinks, No yes, Kids. Yes, we did one on Dinks. Really we're like, good. this is a good thing. You know, they're deleting themselves from society and they're, they're probably not going to be good parents anyway. Malcolm, one thing that you are not want for are controversial takes on life. So keep it going, bro. I agree. Uh, you too. And I hope you have a spectacular day. Yeah. Have a great New Year's, whatever that ends up being this year so I, I will be in touch though thank you i really appreciate all right it. okay there's malcolm guys i love when we can get people on who have thought things through even if sometimes the way they're concluding might be different than the way i'm concluding uh i think it helps to define like who i am who you might be, who we all are. Malcolm Collins with his wife, Simone, Pro-Natalist Foundation. Uh, lots of books. They've written a book, and we're going to bring him back on, as you heard. Talk about relationships. Uh, that is the show today. Guys, it's the new year. We're going to have Art of Tomada three times. We're working on the dates right now. Please, please keep an eye out for that because it's a special event. Go check out our restaurant, kbrestaurant.org. Uh, we did a beautiful, I cannot tell you how cool it was on New Year's. It was ridiculous. Um, trying to put 10 more field workers in the field in the coming 13 months. Our field workers go out and they work on behalf of local people who are not always plugged into this machine, which is great. We don't try to plug them into this global machine. What we try to do honor their local ideas for their local communities by moving resources, consulting, sort of filling in the gaps, playing electricity and connecting them to other entrepreneurs and other impresarios and other well-meaning people around the world so that they can build their goat fences, so that they can start their local restaurants, so they can start their most beautiful cooperatives in order to do the best things for them in places like Sierra Leone, Mozambique, Georgian Republic, Guatemala, right here in the United States. Check out our project here, kbrestaurant.org to learn more about what we do, but also check out First Things Foundation, www.first-things.org. Greg Gilbertson, that's his music. See you next time. <laughs>